0: Well, good morning. If you have your Bibles with you, open to Matthew chapter 5, verses 1 through 12. As Johnny said, my name is Danny Shillero. I am a pastor uh, from Parkside Church in Cleveland. Uh, Mike and Johnny are very, very good friends. Um, Mike especially. Uh, it is a, it's a, really a privilege and an honor that he's invited me here to preach today. Um, There's a a really short list of people who have had a profound impact on my life um, and have been very formative in who I am as a person and as a pastor, and Mike is on that list. Um, Even as I think about preaching the Bible, uh, I still hear Mike's voice in my head as I'm reading the Bible and thinking through uh, how to proclaim God's truth to people. Um, And many of the things that he's taught me and shared with me um, have uh, carried along with me now as I, as I preach, even after he's gone with uh, you here now. Um, sometimes that voice in my head is a little annoying, so it's kind of good that he's gone and he's here, but um, uh, I'm thankful for him, and I hope you are too. Uh, you have uh, really awesome, godly men here in your pastoral team, so don't take them for granted and be thankful for them. Okay? Matthew chapter 5, verses 1 through 12. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven, for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Just a short prayer, will not you bow with me? Gracious God and Heavenly Father, as we come to the Scriptures this morning, we ask that your Spirit would be our teacher. We pray that this book would come alive to us this morning, that you would take these Uh, deep and eternal truths that Jesus speaks to us, and we pray that You would impress them on our hearts. Would You uh, use the words of Jesus spoken from the Scriptures this morning and make us more like Jesus? Would You fix our eyes on Jesus this morning, Lord? Uh, We need Your help to do this, and we pray that You would uh, open our eyes to see wonderful things out of Your law. We pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. It's no doubt that I I have no doubt in my mind that as we read those scriptures that we read this morning, that they are um, not unfamiliar to you. The Sermon on the Mount, which we find in Matthew uh, chapters five through seven, is one of the most well-known passages of scripture uh, in the world, Christian and non-Christian alike. Even if you don't go to church, if you aren't regularly reading the Bible, I'm sure that you have heard passages and portions of the Sermon on the Mount before. You've heard politicians and public figures quote the Sermon on the Mount, some even unaware that they are quoting the Sermon on the Mount. You've heard football teams say the Lord's Prayer before and after games. That's from the Sermon on the Mount. We're very familiar with these verses, maybe even especially these opening verses that Jesus speaks in his introduction to the Sermon on the Mount. Although it's good to be familiar with portions of Scripture like this, there is a sense in which this familiarity, this widespread familiarity, can breed a lack of clarity for the Sermon on the Mount for us. What is the Sermon on the Mount really all about? Well, I want to start today just by reminding us and telling us that the Sermon on the Mount is a message from Jesus about the kingdom of God. The Sermon on the Mount is a message about the kingdom of God. If you look back in the last chapter, in chapter 4, right before Jesus speaks these words, you can see in uh, chapter 4, verse 17, what Jesus says. He says, From that time Jesus began to preach, saying, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And then you can look down a few verses in verse 23 of chapter 4. And you can see this, that he went throughout all Galilee, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom. And he was healing every disease and every affliction among the people. And his fame spread. So from beginning to end, it is crucial to understand that Jesus' ministry was about the gospel of the kingdom. Jesus is all about telling, about telling people about the kingdom of God. And Jesus himself, who is the king of the kingdom of God, in the Sermon on the Mount, opens his mouth and speaks an introduction and an invitation into the kingdom of God. The Sermon on the Mount is the first time that we see Jesus teaching in this detailed way. And we see that as he teaches, he is essentially acting as a royal tour guide of the kingdom for those who hear his words. The Sermon on the Mount is all about what it is like to belong to the kingdom and to serve King Jesus. A couple of weeks ago, I took a trip to Chicago with a group of our students from uh, Parkside Church and It was a very, very long drive to get to Chicago from Cleveland, Uh, but one of my favorite parts of the trip was when uh, we get to the Skyway Bridge heading into the city of Chicago. And as we drive up over this bridge, when you get to the very peak, you can see out before you the entire skyline of the city of Chicago. You can see every single skyscraper lined up next to each other. And it's this beautiful, sprawling picture of the city of Chicago. And now, we went into the city uh, later on in that week, and we were in some of those buildings, and we were in the heart of the city. But I actually think that the essence of Chicago is when you are on top of that bridge and you see the skyline before you. As we read the Sermon on the Mount this morning, I want you to see Jesus taking us up the bridge. And in the Beatitudes, in these opening verses, he's showing us the skyline of the kingdom of God. In these first 12 verses, the, the nature and the characteristics of the kingdom that are described by Jesus here, they give us the essence of the kingdom of God. And all these Beatitudes formed together give us a picture of what the kingdom is really all about. And the essence of the kingdom is this. If you're taking notes, if you want to get our one big idea for this morning it's this. For those who belong to the kingdom of God, we live the blessed life now because we look forward to the best life to come. For those who belong to the kingdom, we live the blessed life now because we look forward to the best life to come. There are really two aspects of the kingdom that are represented in the Beatitudes and that are represented in that big idea, that statement. The present reality of what it looks like to belong to the kingdom and to serve King Jesus and the future reality that is not yet realized, that we haven't yet experienced of what it means to follow Jesus. And so those two, those two ideas, those two points will be our two points that will guide our time this morning. So point number one will be the blessed life now And point number two will be the best life to come. Now, two caveats for us before we begin. Uh, Each of these Beatitudes, each verse, is worthy of a sermon on its own. And I completely recognize that. But as we look at it this morning, I want us to see the big picture of what all the Beatitudes together represent in the kingdom. So you might have a a burning desire to come up to me afterwards and say, you didn't talk enough about what it means to be poor in spirit. You didn't say everything there was to say. I'm going to agree with you right off the bat here and now. But we're going to get the big picture this morning. Secondly, and I actually think what is more important, is to understand that the Beatitudes are descriptive of what it means to belong to the kingdom and not prescriptive for what we need to do to get into the kingdom. There's a very dangerous way to read these verses and think that the characteristics that Jesus is presenting here are somehow prerequisites or requirements to belong to the kingdom. That's not at all what Jesus is saying here. The Beatitudes are a picture of what it looks like to belong to the kingdom only as a result of those who have repented of sin and trusted in Jesus in faith alone. And the Beatitudes then describe what then does that life look like the blessed life now because we look forward to the best life to come let's begin in point number one as we look at the beatitudes I want you to look at each of these verses that say blessed are blessed are blessed are and see that the first half of every sentence represent what we'll be looking at the present reality of the kingdom so we'll see blessed are the poor in spirit Blessed are those who mourn. What is represented in each of those beatitudes is the present reality of the kingdom. The reality of the kingdom of God that is experienced here and now by those who trust in and follow Jesus. Because Jesus is the king and because he has entered into this world and his ministry is here and now and he has arrived, the kingdom has arrived. Because Jesus is king, the kingdom is here. And the blessedness and the accompanying characteristics that Jesus is presenting here describe what it means to be a Christian now. You'll see that the one word that ties all of those beatitudes together is the word blessed. Jesus uses this word over and over and over again. It's really important for us to understand what it means when Jesus says that those who belong to the kingdom are blessed. And I actually think that that word could be easily misunderstood if we begin to project our own ideas uh, uh, into this this part of the Bible about what blessedness really is. If you've ever read other translations of the Bible, maybe you'll remember that sometimes this is translated as happy instead of blessed. But what we need to understand is that we could quickly understand happiness as kind of this superficial, emotional, fleeting state uh, that is temporary, a temporary happiness. And although that that is an an aspect of what Jesus is presenting here, he's, he's offering something far, far greater than that. And even the word blessed that is used in the ESV, that I think you guys read the ESV here, uh, we could easily misunderstand that as maybe these isolated instances of favor from God, maybe a list of blessings that we have in our mind. And although that's part of what Jesus is presenting, that doesn't give us the whole picture. I think a part of the Bible that can help us to understand what Jesus means when he said that, says that the person who belongs to the kingdom is blessed is if you look at the picture in Psalm 1 that the writer gives to us. The, the Psalm 1 gives this picture of a man who is blessed, and he's like a plant that is planted by streams of water. And Psalm 1 says that his, his leaf is flourishing, and his, his leaf doesn't wither, and he doesn't perish. It's this picture of flourishing and, and prosperity. Jonathan Pennington, who's a New Testament scholar, describes this blessedness as a way of being in the world that results in human flourishing. So Jesus, in saying that this person is blessed, he's saying this person who belongs to the kingdom is essentially flourishing. Now, if we understand the Beatitudes in those terms and we really take to heart what Jesus is saying here, we'll begin to feel the gravity of what the Beatitudes are actually introducing. We'll begin to feel the gravity of what Jesus is actually inviting us into as he speaks these Beatitudes. Because I don't care who you are or what you believe, whether you go to church or not, everybody aims their life at human flourishing. Everybody, in the way that you live the goals that you have, and the way that you shape your life, you're aimed at this idea of flourishing and happiness and satisfaction. Even as I drove in from Ohio, I I passed up the Pennsylvania sign, and what does that sign say? It says, pursue your happiness. This is how we live our lives, is pursuing this deep happiness, this flourishing, this satisfaction. Maybe for some of us here, your idea of human flourishing is the American dream. And you say, if I can have a house with a white picket fence and two and a half kids and a golden retriever and get a boat that I can take to the lake on the weekends, then I'm flourishing, I've made it, I've succeeded. Some of you here say, oh no, I'm I'm far, far deeper than that. You say, "I, I take the Hamlet route and I say, to thine own self be true. If I can be true to myself, self-realization, that's human flourishing. If I can find out who I really am and find out my truth and live my truth in this world, then that's flourishing. Maybe some of us are even more virtuous than that and we say, I take the Gandhi route. Say, be the change you wish to see in the world. If I can make this world a better place, then I'm truly, truly flourishing. You can run down the list and see all the different ways that people try to find happiness and satisfaction and purpose and flourishing in this world. We all have an idea of what it looks like to live well and to flourish. What is Jesus' idea of prosperity and flourishing? Let's look look at the list. Run down these verses with me. Verse 3, poor. Verse 4, sad. Sad verse 5 meek verse 6 hungry and thirsty verse 7 merciful verse 8 pure in heart verse 9 peacemakers verses 10 and 11 persecuted reviled and wronged blessedness is flourishing according to Jesus it's a deep satisfaction and happiness and those are the characteristics that Jesus lists that describe the blessed person in the kingdom. I don't know if you've ever gone house shopping. We did, uh, me and my wife did a couple of years ago. We went looking for a house, and I found that it quickly uh, revealed a lot of my values and my priorities, and both of our values and priorities, as we uh, we looked for a house, and we had this checklist of things that we really valued uh, and cared about. And So we had um, a list of, um, say, We want X amount of rooms uh, in the house. We want uh, this many bathrooms. We want uh, a yard. We want uh, this kind of a neighborhood. We want a Chipotle within this many miles of the house. And all these things were really important to us. And every time we walked into a house, we wanted to make sure we checked off those many boxes. I'll tell you what wasn't on my list. I didn't walk into the house and talk to the realtor and say, you know. We're looking for a school system uh, where our kids can be persecuted and reviled. I didn't look out on the back deck and say, babe, I could really see us mourning back here. Why not? What's our idea of the good life? What's our idea of flourishing and prosperity? It's being comfortable. It's having our needs met. It's wanting for nothing being satisfied its power and control look at these beatitudes and really think about what Jesus is saying is flourishing and prosperity and satisfaction in this life the life of blessedness that Jesus is introducing here is not characterized by power it is characterized by a fundamental weakness Meekness, mercifulness, peacemaking. It's not characterized by comfort, but by persecution and mourning. It's not characterized by satisfaction, but by a deep longing and spiritual poverty, poor in spirit, hungry and thirsty for righteousness. You see, Jesus is confronting this age-old question of how can I be happy in this world? How could I live my best life in this world? And Jesus, at the very beginning of the Sermon on the Mount, says, I have the answer. It's by willingly entering into a life of humility and suffering, lowliness, and want. I wonder if you hear that this morning. You say, that is crazy. That is the exact opposite of everything I've ever grown up learning to believe about how the world works. Everything that music and movies and TV tell me about how to live the best life that I can while I'm here. It's the exact opposite of that. Do you see here how incredibly upside down it is what Jesus is saying? He's taking the value system of the world that we live in and completely flipping it on its head. You hear these words, you say, this is crazy. Just even think about taking any of these beatitudes and actually thinking for a moment, what would it look like to live this way? Take, for instance, blessed are the meek. To be meek is to absorb criticism or wrongdoing that has been inflicted on us, and doing nothing in return. John Piper paraphrases this verse and says, blessed are the punching bags. It's to absorb criticism and wrongdoing. And maybe some of us here hear those words today and say, oh, blessed are the meek, that, that sounds really good. Until you get cut off in traffic on the way home from church today, and in the moment that you get cut off, everything's bubbling up inside of you. I can freeze time, and I can ask you in that moment, say, what would make you happy right now? What would make you feel blessed? To be meek and to absorb this criticism. And Ron, No, all of us would, if we're honest with ourselves, we say it is to, it is to punch back, it is to return evil for evil. It's the exact opposite of everything that Jesus is saying here. And you can run down this list and I think that we'll find that everything that Jesus presents as the blessed good life here is completely counterintuitive to everything that we naturally are as human beings. Jesus is flipping things upside down. And I wonder if you read this and you say, Who would ever live this way? See, Jesus, this is the first time you're going to talk about the kingdom to these crowds and to your disciples, and this is your sales pitch? A life of poverty and meekness and lowliness and suffering? You're thinking of ways to invite your friends to church on Sunday, and you realize that this is what Jesus starts with? Why would anyone ever Live this way. Point number two. In the kingdom, we look forward to the best life to come. And it is only in light of the future reality of God's kingdom that we can understand our present circumstances and this life here and now. The blessed life now and point to the best life to come. Look with me again at these verses and see that for every beatitude, every verse... Jesus provides the basis for living this way. The basis for being in the world this way. He doesn't just say, blessed are the poor in spirit, because I said so. He says, blessed are the poor in spirit, because yours is the kingdom of heaven. He says, blessed are you who mourn now, because you will be comforted. Blessed are you who are meek, because you will inherit the earth. The honest truth is that the life now that Jesus describes for those who belong to the kingdom is a life of suffering. At the most fundamental basic level, those things that are described by Jesus are lowliness, humility, and suffering. But in the Beatitudes, Jesus points beyond those circumstances, beyond those characteristics, and points to a future in the kingdom where all of that suffering is actually permanently reversed. Here in the Beatitudes is the great tension of the Christian life. Jesus is king, and he's arrived on the scene. And he's crowned as king, and we we follow him, and we serve him, and we worship him. And so, in that sense, the kingdom is here. And Jesus has died for us on the cross and conquered death As he's risen from the grave, and there are so many realities that we do experience here and now as Christians, 2018 in this moment, but the promises of God have not yet all been completely realized yet, and we live in this limbo, in this twilight zone, in this in between, where we we know that we've been delivered from the power of sin. But you can just look around and watch the news and know that we have not yet been delivered from the presence of sin. And the Beatitudes tell tell us, speaks to this tension and say, this is how you live in this present evil age. This is how you live as you experience the benefits of being united with Jesus and being justified by Him, being sanctified, and as you look forward to that day when you one day will be glorified. You see, Jesus in the Beatitudes is giving us a lens through which to view our lives here in this broken, sinful world. And it's only if we belong to the kingdom and we have that lens to see our present circumstances that we can rightly understand our life here and now on this earth. And when we understand the present reality of the blessed life now, looking forward to the best life to come, we'll be able to say what Paul says. That our present suffering is a light and momentary affliction that actually prepares us for a future weight of glory. I've been watching this show on History Channel called Alone with my wife. It is Uh, a show where a helicopter takes 10 survivalists and flies them up to Vancouver Island in Canada, the wilderness, in the middle of nowhere, and drops them off all in 10 separate locations. They're given 10 items approved by the show uh, that they can bring with them to survive, like a pocket knife and a little stick for making sparks and all that stuff. And they're they're set off in the wilderness, and, and they're told whoever lasts the longest wins $500,000. Now, the, the, the twist to this is that they are all also given a satellite phone that they can use and at any moment, if they want to give up and they want to tap out, they can dial up that satellite phone and the helicopter or the boat will come pick them up and within a matter of hours, they can be at home eating a cheeseburger and drinking a Diet Coke, and all of their their misery will be gone. It's fascinating to watch this show and to see these people who are absolutely miserable setting up tents with twigs and moss, and there are bears running around during the night, and the mosquitoes are getting them, and it's raining for three weeks straight, and they're absolutely miserable. And they're as uncomfortable as you could possibly be. And in their backpack is this phone that they could immediately dial up and go home and not have to worry about any of those, those the, the uncomfortable, horrible sufferings of being on this show. And so you see this psychological warfare and this tension. Why don't these people give up? Why don't they dial up that satellite phone? Why do they forsake all these comforts? It's because they came for a prize. It's because they came for a reward. If you flip back a couple pages in your Bible, you'll see a very similar scenario in Matthew chapter 4 where Jesus is alone in the wilderness. He hasn't eaten for 40 days and 40 nights. And he's physically humanly miserable. And Satan comes to tempt Jesus, and he essentially says, tap out. Turn those stones into bread. He takes them up on a mountain and shows him all the kingdoms of the world and says, all of this could be yours right now. All of the glory and everything you could ever want here and now, I can give it to you. All you have to do is bow down and worship me. Why doesn't Jesus tap out? It's because of the reward that he came for. It's because of the prize that he came for. And it's a prize that the road to get to that prize is a one that is marked by suffering. Jesus doesn't tap out because he came for the prize of eternal life for you and me that was won as a result of him being crowned as king forever and it was a road marked by suffering that led there. You see, look at these Beatitudes and see that Jesus isn't just recommending this life in the Beatitudes. He embodies the Beatitudes. These characteristics are descriptive of the life of Jesus. If you really take a step back from these Beatitudes and you look at them, you'll see that they take the shape of the cross, What is more meek than Jesus absorbing the wrath of God that He didn't deserve on the cross for you and I? What is more merciful than Jesus, King of the universe, being hung on a cross for you and me, simply because He loved us and He wanted a relationship with us? What is more persecuted than seeing the road to Calvary, to see the... Our King spit upon and mocked and beaten for us. Jesus embodies these Beatitudes, and the Beatitudes are maxed out on the cross. I wonder if you've ever heard the song, the hymn writer writes, When I survey the wondrous cross upon which the Prince of Glory died. You hear those words... if we're really thinking about them, you should say, how could we ever say that the cross is wonderful? How could we ever say that this symbol of torture and humiliation and loneliness and pain, how could you say that it's wondrous, that it's wonderful? In what world could we ever say that? It's because on the cross, Jesus, the Prince of Glory, is crowned as king. And it's as a result of the cross and that necessary suffering that we've been rewarded eternal life and a reversal of all the lowliness and brokenness and lowliness of this life that we live here on this earth. On the cross, death and sin are defeated once and for all. And because of the cross, nothing can ever separate us from the love of God. And that's why Jesus emptied himself. That's why Jesus left his heavenly throne above where everything was fine without us. But he takes the form of a servant and he becomes a man of sorrows and suffers for us. Why? Because he liked suffering? Because he liked being hungry? Because he liked being humiliated and lowly? No, because it was the necessary pathway to glory. And the greatest imaginable suffering and loneliness and humiliation that we could ever imagine led to the most immense glory and reward that we could ever conceive of. That's the gospel. That's the message of the cross. And that is why the cross is wonderful. The cross is blessed because of what it won for us. Let me ask you the question again. Why would anyone ever live this way? How could anybody ever say that these characteristics make up the blessed and the flourishing life? Some of you here still don't have the answer to that question. Because you look around at your life and your circumstances and you say, blessedness is nowhere to be found. I feel as though the curse of God is on my life. Brothers and sisters, I want to tell you that in your life and in your circumstances and in this world, there is no blessedness to be found. Thomas Watson writes, True blessedness is far too noble and delicate a plant to dwell in nature's soil. In Luke chapter 6, in the Gospel writer Luke's account of this sermon, he writes about those who try to find their best life here on this earth and try to hoard up everything that they can while they're here so that they can live their best life now. And he says these things of those people. He says, Woe to the rich, for you have received your consolation. He says, Woe to you who laugh now, for you shall mourn and weep. Woe to you when all people speak well of you, for so their fathers did to the false prophets. If you aim true blessedness at this life here and now in this moment, you will find that you will come up empty. There is no true blessedness in the American dream. There is no true blessedness in self-realization. There is no true blessedness in making this world a better place while you're here. We live in a world that is broken and cursed by sin. But if we look beyond this life and we know that beyond this, this, this temporary moment that we live here in this world, that there is an eternal and a glorious reward waiting for those who belong to the kingdom of God. We can have that hope and that guarantee that those who belong to Jesus will experience that hope and will know the glory of receiving that reward. And the more that we fall in love with that vision of the future kingdom, of this life beyond this life that Jesus has waiting for us, the more that we can actually experience blessedness here on earth, and the more and more we'll become disenchanted with the things that distract us from looking into eternity and keeping our eyes fixed on Jesus. This is the kingdom of God. Is Jesus your king? Because if he is... Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. Pray with me. Gracious God, we thank you for the hope of the future kingdom that we see here in the Beatitudes that helps us to make sense of the life that we live now here on earth. God, remind us that there is no true blessedness to be found here on earth apart from the eternal hope of the the kingdom that uh, you've promised us. God, we thank you especially for Jesus who lived this life that he presents here in the Beatitudes, that embodied it, that uh, lived a life of suffering and went to the cross for the sake of uh, winning a reward of eternal life for all of us. God, we pray that you would fix our eyes on Jesus this morning that as we look to him, that by your spirit you would make us more like him. And as we further enter into this life that is described in the Beatitudes, uh, that we would uh, place all of our hope and all of our joy and all of our blessed, blessedness and ideas, ideas of flourishing in the future hope of the kingdom. We thank you that you speak this way through your word uh, to us, and we pray that you would impress these things on our heart. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.